Today on the show, we are keeping the straight ahead 10 foot pole fun going on the show with Dennis Yagard of 10 foot pole. More on that in one second. This is a, this is a, this is a great episode. This is a very, uh, a revealing episode. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turn out a punk podcast at gmail.com that and the Facebook page and the Instagram page and the, uh, Tumblr, Tumblr, people, I don't think we do that anymore, but there, there was a Tumblr page and all that is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do for the show each and every week. And for, for being my brother and putting up with me, you know, he puts up with a lot of, uh, late night phone calls and things like that. So I, I really appreciate it. I love you, buddy. But if you're looking to get in touch with me more directly, you can also send me messages on Instagram and Twitter at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that you enjoy this podcast here each and every week or each and every episode, because a lot of times it's more than one episode a week. Um, And that, that is a great way to support. You can also subscribe to it and rate it on your platform of choice. Uh, and you also, you can head over to patreon.com slash turned out a punk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to each and every one of you that have done that. We over there do turned out a punk footnotes, put each of those up each and every week. And, uh, we've got, we've got some monster footnotes recently. We are Chris O'Toole and I are diving deep on episodes and, uh, that has been a lot of fun. So yeah, check those ones out over there at patreon.com slash turned out a punk. Speaking of support, this thing would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just, you know, hopefully you, 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 you know, you can do it without losing too much money on it. And, uh, they have uh, helped me kind of cover the cost of this thing. And it's been very much appreciated. Thank you very much to Vans for all of that. And when House of Vans comes back, hopefully they will have me back and I will be, uh, you know, appearing at those things and they will be back one day. One day, everyone wear a mask, but one day, hopefully it'll all be back. Uh, but in the meantime, we will be here at Turned Out of Punk, giving you conversations with people and uh, communicating with you that way. So thank you, everyone who supports this podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I, there's a lot of you. There's, a, there's you know, a sizable amount of you who come in each and every week and check out what we're doing here. And uh, I don't say thank you to you enough. So thank you very much for checking out this show. All right. Speaking of this show on this episode, we got Dennis Yagard of the band 10 foot pole of scared straight. And, uh, you know, a a band that played a big role on me. I kind of, you know, we, I started telling Dennis about it in the episode, but we never really get to the story, but my brother and I, and our friend David Wang went on a trip to Montreal together, a very formative trip. One David Wang got his uh, driver's license and we drove at breakneck speeds, illegal legal speeds, you know, mostly legal speeds. It was a, it was not a very fast car, but we got there in time and we did get a chance to see 10 foot pole play on the unleashed record. And, uh, there was a, it, they brought out a reset who of course went on to become simple plan to do a mini set in the middle of their set. And it was at the, it was at the height of this kind of music in Montreal. So there was like a thousand people there. Anyway, it was a huge show for myself and my brother and, and yeah. And, 10 foot pole has been a band, you know, once again, I tell Dennis this on the episode, they were a band that was key to me on this journey because they were the band that exposed me to the idea that a band that I could like from the present day could have this amazing past that I needed to explore, which is, believe me, something I 
as you know from listening to the show, do all the time now. But 10-foot pole opened the door to Scared Straight, which opened the door to Mystic Records. And my gosh, uh, you know, it was like that scene in Wizard of Oz when Dorothy opens the door and all of a sudden everything's in color once I discovered Mystic Records. <laughs> um, so I had to get Dennis on the show and I thought, what better way to follow up Scott Radinsky and, of course, you know, we called it here on the show, L.A. Dodgers' epic World Series win, Scott's former team, uh, and also the first team I ever saw play uh, live in person. So uh, we congratulate them on their win. And what better way to follow it up is then with another member of the uh, Scared Straight 10-foot pole roster. Dennis took over on vocals once Scott did depart the band and kept the band going. And uh, yeah, this is a revealing episode i think he opens up and lets us in on the realities of being a touring musician and kind of following your dreams and and trying to make it work and i can relate to that profoundly and i think a lot of musicians can relate to the story and the struggle very much you know because it is something that we all go through and there's constant regret um Anyway, I'm not going to spoil it anymore. I want you to listen to this thing. It, it is a fascinating conversation. And uh, that is it. Check out his brand new acoustic EP. Uh, check out 10footpole.com. And uh, we, I will see you on the other side. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Dennis Yegard on Turned Out a Punk. Dennis, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Well, I spared you from this off air before we were uh, when we were just doing that little preamble. But I'm a massive fan, and uh, you know the Unleashed record holds such a like six four three hundred. What? Oh, I'm 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 six. You got to quantify how big you are when you say massive. Like I'm, you know, picturing He Man. (laughs) I'm about I'm about six one six two on a good day, and about. About I'm about three three hundred pounds uh, on a not so good day. So yeah, I'm a pretty big fan. I mean, literally as well as figuratively. Um, but I've I've been wanting to talk to you for a long. Well, you did time. mention wrestling in the preamble, so I, I hate to interrupt before you even ask your first question. But so I, I thought it was fair for me to ask how much you bench because considering that you already made a reference to wrestling, I have to assume that you have professional wrestling experience. Is that true? No, but I did do a documentary TV series about pro wrestling. For, oh, nice. For Vice a couple years ago. So I'm actually, yeah, I'm, I'm punk rock is my number one obsession, but right underneath it is pro wrestling. And so nah, I knew it. I knew it. So I, you're benching 350, but only 300 on a bad day, you said. I, I, the only benching I do is crates of records <laughs> up and down the stairs as I'm trying to move them around the house to make room. Nice. I'm not a weightlifter, by the way, in case anyone's lifting, uh, listening and they're like, bro, does that guy even lift? I actually, the only exercise I do, like I have been exercising a lot, but the only exercise I do is with my dog. It's a, she's an Australian cattle dog. And uh, we basically play tug of war with the rope. And I try to shift my angles to get lots of good um, uh, pulls for my back. But basically that's it. Like when I do biceps, I'm like lifting her up with, you know, my, and she jerks her neck and tries to tear my rotator cuff. But uh, other than that, it's a, it's a pretty fun workout because I got company. Well, it's it's good cardio. It sounds like. <laughs> well, it's it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of resistance training. Like you know, <laughs> she's not a pit bull, but it's the same kind of thing. Like she has a really strong neck, and she throws her whole body into it. So you know, she's maybe only forty pounds, but when she throws herself against you, it's the dynamic 
weight of that. I don't know what it is, but it's a lot more than 40 pounds. <laughs> well, you're about to experience the dynamic weight of, uh, of punk punishment um, in a second. But I got to start this off, Dennis, the way they all start off, which is how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um, a as a musician slash artist slash performer or just as a fan? In any we gotta capacity. We got to qualify this. In, in any capacity, yeah. Just like even the first time you heard the word. Uh, the first time I was exposed to it, uh, well, we, I have to take you back here. So my father was a, a defense contractor making inertial navigation systems for um, guided missiles when I was a kid. And uh, and so, you know, he was really into the bomb building and all that kind of things that they were doing in the Cold War in the 70s. But on the side, because of his family background, he had a background in um, audio and film and so he had a side business and we also had stages. And so when I was about 10 years old, we had all these wood stages that we kept in our backyard and we would drag them out. Pixie, no barking. You said you'd be good. That's my workout partner there. She's kind of crying in the background. <laughs> um, probably having a disagreement with her mom about um, something. Hey, you have to be good if you want to stay in here. But anyhow, so my dad had a sound... Uh, film and stage company which had these wood stages and when i was about 10 years old he goes okay come on we got to go uh you know take down this these stages and we went to a place called devonshire downs which is now part of the cal state northridge campus but at the time it was basically a big fairgrounds like kind of a big empty building that they had fairs in and there was this band playing called black flag <laughs> and my dad grabs the corner of the stage while they're on stage performing and says well that's it it's one o'clock supposed to be done let's pull it out <laughs> and, I, and, and like you know in the 90s when i was doing like like later like you know 25 years after that mm -hmm. punk is was a lot more um uh what's the word safe yeah. when like like in the 10 foot pole touring over the years like the people who come to our shows for the most part are friendly, respectful, you know, they might be kind of dicks here and there, but a black flag, a black flag show in 1979, it was more like, uh, you know, a lot of like leather and, uh, you know, switchblade knives. And like, it was, it was a, like punk back then was like kind of really like people who were bullied too much and were kind of, dirty greasy vicious looking <laughs> i'll tell you a different story later if you remind me i don't want to i don't want to go off on a different story but i have a different story about how vicious it can be but at the time i was a 10 11 year old kid and my dad was trying to pull the wood stage out from under black flag while there were a thousand <laughs> people in the audience who looked mean yeah at least to a 10 year old kid they they weren't like friendly skate punks. They were like, you know, black flag fans. <laughs> and so I'm like, Dad, let's go to Denny's and have some pancakes, you know. And he couldn't resist that. So like, you know, there was a Denny's right down the street. So we we went and ate, then came back when the show was over and pulled the stage. So basically I kept my dad from at least getting his ass kicked, probably getting shanked. I mean, who knows? <laughs> but uh yeah, so that that was the first punk show I went to. That's amazing. Well, that's like, and also like, you know, you're talking about how, how, how hairy it could get, especially in that part of the world, like Southern California really is the, the sort of epicenter of, of like, you know, hardcore, like the idea of like, you know, not just punk rock, but the idea of being the hardest 
element of punk rock. And as you're saying, it like it, it attracted people that felt rejected from society. Yeah, yeah. And and it's funny that, you know, we say this and I say that, you know, punk crowds are generally like kind and whatnot. But I think like the world is going is kind of going back into a, a very mean place where people do like draw guns on each other and, and stuff is getting totally gnarly because of political reasons and, and because of um, wealth stratification. I, I ultimately I think that's what it is, is because um, that people are just seeing the poverty go up you know? And so, uh, but anyway, at, at the time I, I didn't really think much about it, but, uh, a, a couple years later I had friends who brought me into kind of the music of punk and, uh, really just kind of opened my whole world to how interesting and, and like the lyrics of punk music to me were just much more real than a lot of the other music. I liked other music at the time, like Black Sabbath and Iron Maiden and Van Halen and ACDC and the, the kind of stuff that a 12 year old kid would like in 1982 or 1981. But, um, but once I heard the lyrics of minor threat and fear and social distortion and youth brigade and seven seconds, like all that kind of stuff, um, it just opened a whole different world. Like instead of singing, like, like Van Halen, like 80% of the songs are about love or making love or, you know, it's just like, I mean, that was kind of what rock music was at the time. I, I mean, obviously Black Sabbath's different, which is why I liked them. You know, it's like they, they were about death and whatnot. And, uh, and, but, but the average rock band was just all about love and sex and drugs and rock and roll. And the average pop band was all about just love. Like that's all it was, you know, eight or 80% of it. Mm -hmm. And, um, to, to hear these songs about friendship or um, foreign policy or you know stuff like that was just like, wow. And so that's, and that was right at the time when I wanted to start making music. And so um, I could barely play the guitar. And so it was just kind of exciting to be somewhere where you could make a song without that much skill that was fairly interesting and say something that you thought was important and people at a party would drink and go crazy and jump all over each other and have a have a um, just a, a crazy wild time. And and that's how I got into it was kind of that combination of energy, simplicity and yet uh, lyrics about things that seemed uh, pertinent and real and important. Where were you getting into that music prior to punk rock, like sort of that heavy rock stuff? Was it through the radio or, or magazines or, or what was the gateway to that kind of stuff? Um, I, I would say radio kind of opened my eyes to the kind of music that was out there. But then at that time, like, um, it was more like hearing it from friends and, and, um, I, I just was thinking, I, I didn't listen to Van Halen that much, but since Eddie Van Halen just passed, rest in peace. Mm -hmm. I, um, I was thinking about that, that just like my neighbor, there was a stoner that was always trying to get me to smoke pot with him. And I was, you know, 10 years old, but uh, like he wasn't my pal, but they were playing uh Jamie's crying one day in front of their house and skateboarding. And, and it was like, Oh, that's really cool. And what is that? You know, I asked him and they're like, it's Van Halen one. Or, you know, I, I don't know whether it was called one at the time, but there's like, it's this Van Halen record, you know? Yeah. And, and, um, you know, and, and back in those days, like, like if it wasn't on the radio, your only option was kind of to hear it from friends or, or to, go to a record store and, and see what the cover looked like and buy it and then take it home and see if you liked it. 
or uh, or join Columbia Records, where for thirteen you get thirteen <laughs> for a penny, and um, and there were a lot of weird things about judging music by its cover. I'll use an example. My biggest disappointment was uh, Molly Hatchet because they had the most scary, evil-looking covers. And then I started playing it, and the guy's all, I'm going down the road, and I'm flirting with disaster. And I was like, oh, my God, this is horrible. You know, because I, I was thinking from the cover that it would be, like, you know, dark and evil like Black yeah. Sabbath. Yeah. No, I, I feel the same way about Grateful Dead. You know, I think I, I saw the shirts, and I saw the skull, and I'm like, oh, this is going to sound one way. And then you hear it, you're like, <laughs> that's not it. Trucking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, there was a few dead songs that i like and and i've uh i've gone to a couple of shows and i i went to uc berkeley so i hung out with some you know people who were in deeper into that scene and and hung out with them kind of more for the experience than than any kind of love of music I, there's probably like five grateful dead songs that i like and then i just can't hang with all the wanking like like yeah I think it's interesting that people like jam bands and that they play it different all the time and they're improvising on solos, but I don't find solos kind of inherently interesting. And that's why I'm not a big jazz fan is like, I, I appreciate that there's a lot of thought and um, musical stuff behind, uh, behind what jazz people do. But if there's not like lyrics and a, and a melody I can follow, (laughs) you know, I relate. I definitely I did one to. jazz tour where I was literally doing push-ups to stay awake. <laughs> I was on the side of the stage as the monitor engineer. I won't tell you what act, but um, hold one second. I'm going to call for help here. Uh, going back to that first show, that Black Flag show, I guess that would have been Keith Morris kind of era, right? Like, I'm sure you probably have very little recollection of being a kid at that point, but um, that was super early on into the band's kind of career. Yeah, I can't say. Um, I, I've looked back to see if I could guess when it was, but they played at the the Devonshire Down, Devonshire Downs was a pretty popular place, and they played there quite a bit. So mm-hmm. it, it could have been a few different people. Because um, I don't even know the exact time. I'm guessing 1979. I'm guessing I was 11, 10, but it could have been 78 or it could have been 80. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's all a blur at this point. I try to say it like I know what I'm talking about, but I. I I uh, sometimes have a false sense of uh, historical accuracy just because I don't want to go into this on every story I tell. I'll <laughs> say it like it's a fact, but just know there's a little bit of leeway. could be plus or minus three years when when we're talking about 40 years ago. That's that's well within the margin of error. So that's completely understandable. <laughs> yeah, 10%. Let's, yeah. let's give me a 10% leeway. Whether it's intentional or unintentional, I, I would request a 10% leeway on historical accuracy. Well, it will be given. And going back to those friends that you mentioned that kind of brought you in, what was the stuff that they played you initially that really kind of hooked you? Or what were there bands that you kind of you heard and you're like, okay, this is what I wanted? Yeah, the, there was a variety of stuff. So so I grew up in Simi Valley, which was um, on the edge of Ventura County. And uh, the towns around us included Oxnard which became famous for Oxnard hardcore, otherwise known as Nardcore. And, um, and there was a record um, on Mystic Records called Nardcore, which they invited us to be on, even though we weren't technically Oxnard, but we were just over the hill from Oxnard. And, um, and we ended up touring with Ill Repute in 1985. So, well, I should back up. So before 10 Foot Pole was 10 Foot Pole, we were called Scared Straight. And we just changed the name to 10 Foot Pole for a variety of reasons. But, um, but 
Scared Straight in in 1985 on our first big tour was in 1985, uh, supporting Ill Repute in the summer of '85, and um, and that was around the time the album, the Oxnard, uh, the Nardcore album had been out. In fact, by then I think we had an EP, which was a nine song EP, which we were proud of and stoked to be like we were barely driving and and crossing the country, and um, so but before we did the tour, we played a lot of parties. And so, um, so the bands that we knew locally from actually seeing them were bands like, uh, Stalag 13 and aggression, um, Dr. No ill repute were these, you know, kind of LA or Oxnard or whatever it was bands. And then, um, you know, being in LA, we saw other bands came to town. Like, in fact, one of my biggest, uh, uh, bummers is that I missed Minor Threat. Like right after Minor Threat came to town is when I got into him because all my friends were like, "Oh, that Minor Threat show was so great," and I'm like, "Oh, who's that?" And then I started listening. I was like, "Oh my god, I missed it." And um, but there were other bands that came through town that that um, that we got to see and you know like Exploited and Heart Attack and I, I can't even say all the bands. They're just uh, we started going to places like the Cafe de Grand in Hollywood and and um. Cause we were playing there, but we also would go as fans sometimes and just, and see whatever bands government issue and scream. And, um, I can't even say all the bands A negative approach was one of my favorites when I was at, back then. Oh, damn. Um, did they, they didn't come out and play though. Right. I don't think they ever made it out West. Did they? No, I didn't see them, but you were asking like what, what yeah, music I listened to. Um, and in fact, you mentioned, you know, Brian Walsby and, and Brian Walsby is one of the people who brought vinyl records over to my house and said, you have to, you have to hear this band, like, um, 76% uncertain. They had yeah. a song called coffee achiever. <laughs> I'm a coffee achiever. Can't you see? Did it? I tried to find that on Spotify and it wasn't there. That was uh, disappointing. But, um, cause I was make, trying to make a Spotify playlist of some of my favorite old punk songs. I think and, it's on um, YouTube though, that, that record definitely. Cause I was listening to it the other day, weirdly. Uh, I was trying to make a Spotify playlist just in case I ever wanted to like say, you know, these are some of my favorite stuff. Like I haven't, you know, advertised it or anything, but I thought maybe that's something I should do, you know, yeah. just in case someone like you said, Hey, what, what were your favorite songs? I could say, well, it's just check out my playlist. And then, um, and then I'll put some 10 foot pole in there and then people will listen to my music accidentally. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but, um, yeah, I, I yeah, Wallsby, um, Mike Thompson, the singer of our band. So, so S Scott Rudinsky was the singer when we became Ten Foot Pole, but and and as Scared Straight. But before him, there were actually like three different singers, and, and uh, one of them, Mike Thompson, he was like a tough guy punk, and I and and he um he was really into like Fear and Circle One and and like uh what else, just like really tough punk and then uh, and then i had other friends who were into peace punk and then it was just kind of you know so different people showed me different stuff and um you know like i i wasn't totally down with fear's politics but i did like the sound of their record like the fear album um like the song like camarillo and and uh foreign policy and you know there was like the typical i don't care about you um songs mm -hmm. but there was all there were other songs that that actually sounded really good. Like the sonics of them were really good. And that kind of surprised me because as a kid, I just always thought, well, punk is just going to be, you know, kind of sound like garbage. But, um, 
but bands like that, uh, some of them sounded really good. And so that was kind of exciting to be open to this whole underground culture that you would never hear those songs on the radio except for uh, Rodney on the Rock, R- Rodney uh, Bingenheimer. Mm-hmm. Um, used to play, used to have a radio show with with uh, some cool songs, like once a week on Sunday night or something. And um, But yeah, but back in those days, you know, you couldn't just sample music. It, later, there became record stores where you could listen with headphones to music, but that didn't exist, at least in my world, in the 70s and 80s. Like, y- you couldn't sample anything. So you just, you know, you looked at the cover. In in fact, I bought Black Flag Fade to Black because I had seen them at that concert and not really known any of their songs and because it was kind of a best of, I thought. And um like I bought that record like having no idea what they sounded like. <laughs> but like kind of like, you know, right in the beginning of all that was kind of like, well, I, that band's obviously big. A thousand people was there watching them. And um and they kicked ass. I mean, they you know, I don't I don't know who the singer was, but they were you know, it was an aggressive band. And, um, so I bought the record based on that and the cover. (laughs) So what was, do you remember the second punk show you went to then? Well, I don't know. I, 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 I have another memory of Devonshire Downs before I was into punk, uh, which was the cramps. Oh, wow. And, um, but (laughs) I didn't actually see them. I only saw the aftermath and part of it was a cow tongue out on the floor and and so I wasn't uh, a big fan of the cramps and they had and there were a bunch of singles. It was uh, the song was called Teenage Goo Goo Muck. Yeah. And it was and I listened to it and I was like, what is this crap? And it was kind of like rockabilly. It was like I turned into a teenage goo goo muck. And I was, and, it was, and so I didn't think that was punk or at least it wasn't the same kind of punk as Fear and Minor and um, Minor Threat and uh black flag <laughs> but but you know maybe it was punk i don't know you know like in in hindsight but at the time it did not fit into my category of what you know what was a real punk band and then after that it all becomes a blur because i went to so many shows and did so many different things like it, it was kind of a it's hard to say what was the next one well it's also like you know just from uh you know just talking to different people and stuff like that that you know especially people that weren't scared straight like yourself obviously uh that you guys were kind of part of like the next wave of bands that were kind of coming up you know like with america's hardcore and caustic cause and and i guess no effects ultimately as well like it felt like there was like a like a shift that was kind of happening around that time am am i reading that right historically what was going on well i'm not a punk historian but i would say that uh yeah there definitely were like 70s bands and then we were 80s band like mm-hmm. and there and there was a difference and um and the 80s bands like you said um so so in in 1985 we went on tour in the summer and our equipment and car and everything got stolen in Pittsburgh Pennsylvania so we made it across the country and then and then we lost everything and then we played one more show on borrowed equipment in Baltimore and then um and and then uh, it kind of fell apart. Like some of us wanted to go on, but then some of us decided to go home and that was it. And, and in fact, Brian Walsby became an artist for Corrosion and Conformity. And he was the last straw. Like we were going to go ahead and he wanted to go ahead. And then all of a sudden we all had a plan of going ahead. And then he was like, sorry, guys, can't do it. I'm going to I'm going to move to North Carolina or rally or wherever. I can't remember what he said. And, uh, and I'm going to be an artist for corrosion and conformity, or, or maybe he said, I'm going to do merch for corrosion and conformity and draw pictures. 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, that was the only time I was ever mad at Wellesby was just because I had just gone through all this like trying to convince the other people, okay, we can keep going. I'm going to use my dad's credit card. I'll get another guitar. We'll get it. Cause the show we played in Baltimore, I, I played this PV amp that had zero distortion. So it sounded like a jazz solo, like zero. distortion. was like, <laughs> and, um, but, but kids still went nuts. So I was just like, you know what? We're here. Let's keep touring. But, um, but anyway, Walsby got his dream gig, which was to work for corrosion conformity. And he literally like, he just stayed out there. Like he moved from California to North Carolina and was, was an East coast guy for years and years that I'm not sure exactly what path he took after that, but, um, well, he, it, it's such a weird, uh, thing that happens with him because obviously, you know, he's in scared straight with you guys and you guys go on to become 10 foot pole and have massive impacts on in West coast punk rock and, and, you know, that whole scene. Then he winds up doing a band uh, wax with Mac who winds up being in super chunk, you know, and obviously Mac goes on to kind of have his own thing with merge and kind of, you know, all their kind of impact they had. And then he does a band with Ryan Adams. And of course, before Ryan Adams gets revealed for being who he is, but obviously Brian Adams had a big impact. And then he turned down being in Nirvana. Um, uh, when, when he got called by the Melvins guys asking if he wanted to, uh, takes take Dale's role as a drummer in the band, and uh, he said he didn't like Bleach, and and that was the end of the conversation. Wow, well, I I didn't hear that story, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, I I uh, I I like Brian. He's a he's a good guy, and we we had a lot of good times on tour, telling stories, and basically, I don't know why, but when we're together, we ended up giggling a lot, like you know. <laughs> Where like he he'd be reading about Quorthon, this guy, and like because he would be, read all these metal fanzines, at least you know in the eighties, and uh and he he'd be giggling about stuff, and and uh I don't know, it was just silly. He he was it was fun to hang out with Brian, and uh, he just made a book called Self Impunishment, and uh and it's pretty interesting. He he interviewed a whole bunch of different people who kind of you know were trying to like make their way in the world as you know, it's supposed to be like self-employment, like, you know, like trying to be an artist basically. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, I, it's a, it's definitely a struggle, especially right now in the pandemic with things, everything shut down and, and um, already it's just, it's really difficult. I was even just going through things today with like family, family members mocking me for poor life decisions I made, (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, I mean, this is the absolute truth. Like I I went to UC Berkeley and, and could have been, you know, kind of a professional or probably a good lawyer or something and done something like where I was financially successful. And, and instead, I'm, instead I chose to be a, a sound engineer for concerts and, um, and then a musician and, you know, whatever. And, uh, there's a big price you pay for that. And that, that's basically what Walsby's, Walsby's books about. He interviews a whole bunch of different people who are in those kind of situations. Yeah, no, and it certainly is like, you know, not to undermine the or undercut the the real, you know, financial severity of stuff that's happening right now. But at the same time, like, you know, if you had gone on to become a lawyer, like, I don't know, like how my life might be different, because finding out that the guys from 10 foot pole had been in this band on mystic records opened up a huge world to me, you know, like that was a, a massive gateway. And I'm just one person, you know, there's probably you know, people like me in every single city you guys played, you know, that had their, their minds kind of open to it. So obviously the financial (laughs) reality, notwithstanding, but like the impact that you had would be, you know, certainly 
different in my life had you, you know, wound up being a lawyer. Yeah, well, there's so many different possibilities. And, and um, you know, I definitely, I mean, the reason I do it is that kind of connection with people and, and that sense of that there are some people who are hoping that I keep writing songs and keep putting out music and, and you know, and that's a great feeling. But, but my brothers do have a point too, that there's a, uh, you know, there's a bit of a uh, financial responsibility, like to my kids, like I, my oldest son is taking the SAT tomorrow. And it's like, I don't have money to pay for his college. And the reason I don't have money to pay for his college is because I chose to be a sound engineer slash musician. And it doesn't mean that being a sound engineer, you can't have money, but for whatever reason, the different choices that I've made over the, over my life, I tend to overinvest in things when they're going well. Um, like a couple of years back, I, I was thinking I had a whole bunch of work lined up, like probably the best I'd ever been and had more than a year worth of income all lined up, which is kind of rare in this business. And so I bought, and so I was thinking, well, since I have all this income lined up, I really need to invest in something that'll be a great write-off. So I bought a tour van, I bought a sprinter. And, um, the idea being that in between my jobs, I'll try to push the band. Like, that'll be a great, like side thing to do and whatever. And, you, you know, if you're actually making money as an independent contractor, then the write-off might be like 30%. So basically, if you imagine anything you're about to buy, it's on sale for 30% off because that money would have gone to the government as taxes anyway. Yeah. So at the time I'm thinking, oh, this is just brilliant. Like, you know, cause the cost of renting a van and going on a U.S. you know, Canada tour is like $5,000. So immediately right out the gate, you know, I buy this van and $5,000 of that would have gone toward a rental, you know, like renting a van and a trailer and like, you know, the whole thing. Like I'm talking about fully like cross Canada and cross the U.S. like, like a, a full on tour. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, anyway, the minute I bought the van, like not the minute, but like a few weeks after I committed to the van, I lost both of those gigs, <laughs> both, both like a whole year worth of income that was lined up, gone, yeah. just gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's definitely like a, a feast for famine kind of industry. And right now with the way the world is, it's it's more famine than feast. And oh, yeah, for, for sure. But even back then, even that was before the famine. And that's why the cover of Brian Walski's book has people on a roller coaster. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's exactly it is like one minute you're like going up and everything's great. And the next minute it's just crashing because that's the that's the thing about being, a you know, owning your own business and all the different risks you take and stuff is like, one minute you're, you know, the top of the world and the next minute, you know, for whatever reason you're, you know, canceled or, you know, something happens. And, and, um, and both, both of the jobs that I lost were, I shouldn't say weren't my fault. I mean, everything's always my fault, but you know, one, one of them was like a company that I worked for lost their whole gig. And, and the other one was, um, oh, I don't want to tell, I don't want to say too much details, but it ultimately came down to it was a very special tour, a different kind of tour. And, um, it involved an orchestra and, um, I decided that someone else would do a better job with me with an orchestra unless we hired an extra orchestra person. And so it basically came down to me saying, I think it's going to better serve the artist if I step back and you get someone who's like an orchestra specialist, cause it's an orchestra gig now. Mm -hmm. Or we have to hire someone, but if they hire someone, now they're paying two people, not just paying them, but also the hotels and like 
all the food and the travel and everything. So ultimately it came down to, it wasn't like I did something wrong and got fired. It was like just the, the situation changed and it turned into a, a year worth of work, a year worth of my income, literally gone and not replaced by another job. It was just gone. <laughs> in fact, in fact, what it was replaced by was 10 foot pole touring, which was <laughs> like losing money instead of making money. <laughs> yeah. No, they, for at least six months of that year <laughs> yeah no it's the reality of like you're saying it's like the like, and i still have those van payments to make <laughs> yeah yeah no it's 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 the uh it's the the reality of like you know investing in your art you know and investing in in your creativity and and just the fact that it is it, like it is the most you know uh rewarding but also risky thing you can do yeah. And, and and if you look through the history of humankind, it's like, you know, there's a lot of people, Shakespeare or whatever, like there's a lot of people who have tried to be on their own. And, you know, sometimes people get picked up by a benefactor or whatever. And, and sometimes people just starve. And maybe after they're dead, they become famous and or the poetry they wrote becomes, you know, respected or the the paintings they did suddenly are worth millions and they, you know, they died penniless or whatever. And, um, that's kind of, that's kind of the nature of this gig. And, and, um, but it is a choice and, and there certainly is responsibility there. And especially as someone who's brought kids into the world, it's kind of like, you know, that definitely weighs on me as my responsibility. And, and, um, you know, I, I know that there's, there are other things I could have done or that from this day forward, maybe I should do. Mm -hmm. But I, I still have a plan and I think I still have, I'm still optimistic. So we just made an acoustic record and, um, and, and people love it so far or either that, or I've just like gotten rid of all the trolls in my bubble. <laughs> you know, like so far everyone's like, oh my God, this acoustic record sounds so good. So the, the, it's called Simmer Down and I mixed it and produced it. And it's the first record that I've mixed and produced. So, so I'm a live sound engineer, but I've, I had never made a record. And, um, in fact, one time Prince told me you should make records. Well, actually he said, do you make records? And I said, no, I focus on live sound because I'm a specialist. Like I'm really good at live concerts. And he just kind of looked at me like, huh, you should make records. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and at the time I was a little bit offended, but now that I've done it, I kind of realized what he, what he meant that there's a different focus when you're making a record, like the the amount of um, intense focus that you do on each part of it can help in the way that you um, percept uh, the kind of perception you have about sound. And, and when you're doing live sound, it's everything is a mad rush and you don't have time to sit and think about things and make little tweaks. It's kind of like you just do your best under the circumstances and then the show is over and then you sleep in the bus. And um, yeah, well, after you load the truck, you load the truck, then you sleep in, you know, you load the truck, you shower, you sleep in the bus, and then you do the same, you know, unload the truck the next day in a different city. And, um, it's like two completely different worlds. Like, you know, like I just thinking about how a band operates when it's time to record and write music versus how, you know, you operate on the road. And I imagine working with bands in different situations, you know, both, you know, in front of the microphone and, and kind of behind the microphone, you know, I guess it doesn't really work that analogy but anyway i hope you know what i mean but like i imagine you get to see kind of like all sides of that thing yeah i um for me things come down to i get bored easily and and for me to be really good at something i need to take a break from it so um for me to be a good artist 
I, I need to step away and be a technician sometimes. And for me to be a good technician, I need to step away and be an artist sometimes. And the reason is that it's a totally different skill set and, and not just the skill set, but the expectations. Like when, when you're an artist, everyone's looking at you and judging you. Um, and when you're a technician, you're like this anonymous person who's in the back of the room mixing the band. And you just get to focus on the work and, and there is no expectation about, you know, do you have a pimple on the, on your nose or, you know, do you, are you wearing bad footwear? The reason I bring up footwear is that sometimes I mix the two of them. Like, um, <laughs> I, I think it was in Germany again, I'll pick on Germany, but, uh, so one of the things that I did for a while, I mixed about 500 Jimmy eat world shows and, um, and a lot of times there were people who were outside waiting for hours and hours to get in. And sometimes I'd go punish them by uh, going outside and playing acoustic guitar and singing 10 foot pole songs. And, you, you know, I'd always ask for permission. And of course they, most of the time they said yes, because they'd been sitting there for a long time. They're kind of a captive audience just waiting to get into a building to wait longer for the bands to play. And, um, and so during my dinner break, I'd step outside sometimes. And, um, and I remember one time in Germany, I stepped outside and I had a great set. Like people were really positive and singing along and, um, singing along, like, even if they don't know the songs, because I have songs like don't be a dick where there's a, a great chorus. It's easy to remember. And I would just tell people, you know, sing, you know, dick, 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 dick right here. And, um, anyway, but after that, I, I saw, um, there, there was a picture and a review of me basically. And then like halfway through was someone was just like, wow, he was so great. His voice was that, but those shoes were terrible. <laughs> and I was like, I'm a worker. I'm a sound engineer. And I was wearing work boots. It was just, well, that's, that's just, also Germany for you where no matter what you're going to hear about the one thing that went wrong during the his boots were scheisse <laughs> <laughs> no but that but it's not just germany i mean that's just the expectation is that an artist is supposed to be like uh stylistic is supposed mm -hmm. to be hip is supposed to be um you know fashion conscious and i mean in in punk rock like i always kind of thought you know anti-fashion or whatever that i i don't have to live by those rules but the reality is even in punk there's a lot of there's people just expect you to look a certain way. And if you don't, it becomes some, for some people, it becomes a, you know, a deal breaker. Like, wow, I can't, I can't listen to that guy. He's got work boots on. <laughs> <laughs> He's wearing work boots. Man. What a dick. <laughs> uh, going back to, you know, get when you're first kind of getting into it, was that like, was that something that you saw was like, were people like, you know, fucking with people for having long hair or for, you know, not dressing punk enough type thing? Like, cause, cause it is, uh, you know, a notorious scene for violence. And I find, you know, everyone that comes on that grew up part of, you know, early Southern California hardcore has a real different take on the violence that they were exposed to or that was kind of happening around them. Well, yeah, I mean, there, um, there was, there were several things there, there were several aspects of violence in it. I would say one, um, I, I remember our guitar player before he went bald in his older days had spiky hair and looked kind of like Billy Idol. Mm -hmm. And I remember somebody at the cafe to grand giving him a hard time, like, you oh, know, Billy Idol did it. And in our, our guitar player, he had this total baby face and he kind of looked up with the, you know, with the scowl. And, and I remember they were going to go at it a little bit. Um, Oh, I should tell you that story. So, our very first show at the Cathay de Grand, Mike Thompson was our singer. 
um, the guy I was talking about that, that, uh, played music for me. And, um, and there was a guy, uh, what was the name of his band? I can't remember now, but he was like a crusty punk. It wasn't Lee Ving, but it was a singer of a band that was not as big as fear. Um, and I probably shouldn't say the name of the band anyway, but it was one of our first times at Cathay de Grand and we were, you know, we couldn't even drive. We were like 14. Right. And mm -hmm. we were playing a punk show in Hollywood. So we thought we were hot shit. We we're just having a great time. And we were upstairs at Cathay de Grand and, and Mike Thompson was like, Oh, we got to come and go sit by this guy. It's the singer of da, 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 da. And, um, you know, he's just so cool. Da, da, da. And so we went over and sat by him and, and this guy was just kind of really quiet. And our singer was punishing him a little bit, but he was just basically a huge fan. He's like, oh, I'm your biggest fan, da, da, da. And he was like, you know, he was a little guy and he thought he was really tough. And then all of a sudden this singer guy whips out a switchblade and puts it up to my to Mike's throat and says, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like Mike just kind of like, oh, his eyes got really big. And he's like, okay, sir, I'll just get out of here. <laughs> and it was a, um, yeah, it was kind of, it was scary, you know, that was like, like we're, we're down here in Hollywood and, you know, we had like a little bit of a, a, a eye opener that, you know, bad things could happen, <laughs> mm -hmm. but it was also fun because, because that guy was kind of, cause Mike was a little guy, but he was also like really strong and he was a good wrestler and he was a bit of a bully. So it was kind of fun to watch him get like, just, you know, <laughs> slapped down so hard by his, by a hero. Like, and that, that was what what made it kind of interesting too, was that like, you know, I would, I, I'm not even a dick to people who like my band, even if they're really on my nerves, like I might leave or hide or something, but, um, threatening their life was <laughs> not on my list of things I might do. <laughs> yeah. I, for one, am grateful that, you know, singers and bands were not dealing with punishers in the 10 foot pole days the same way. <laughs> Cause I think, I don't know how long I would have lasted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what was like the, that scene like around Cafe de Grand? Cause like, you know, there are, you know, Justice League and, and America's Hardcore. Like there is sort of like the, you know, a bunch of, you know, now legendary kind of hardcore bands all popping oh, up. You know what? I remember now what I was going to say that I didn't say earlier. So in 1985, we went on that summer tour with Ill Repute and, and it, uh, and it crashed and burned, but, um, and some people were kind of over it, but I was, and I was just a glutton for punishment. So that winter we went on a short winter tour in Texas and, uh, like kind of those areas from, from LA to Texas and back. And we, and one of the bands on that tour or on parts of that tour was no effects. Cause you were asking about, oh, yeah. wasn't no effects part of that wave. And it was entropy, no effects, uh, scared straight. And another band that I now I'm not remembering. Entropy was my favorite band. No effects was horrible. They Musically, they were bad and they were also just really like, uh, just psycho. They had, they had, it wasn't that they were so bad, but they had psycho girlfriends and that there was all this drama, like, like leather jackets were getting stolen and, you know, like, like just like kind of the worst stuff you can, you know, just kind of the something like you would think that it's like too dramatic to be like, um, real but it it happened <laughs> and we went into mexico and stuff and they lost one of their guys for a while and it was it was a uh, a bit funky but um was that the weird tour they did where they had another guy singing where like mike just played bass i think i think i, I don't know i don't think so the, this was years and years ago and yeah. they were well i i couldn't tell you i just remember not being impressed at all like they were just <laughs> kind of like 
you know, and, and, and Mike would be the first to say that they did suck back then. I mean, that was way before like El Jefe and, and, and even like S and M airlines and stuff. That was way before they were good basically. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but, uh, but he kept at it and, you know, more power to him. Like he, he, you know, he's a great songwriter and he built a label and made a fortune and, you know, it's, a uh, it's amazing what, what he, um, what blossomed from what basically was a horrible band in the eighties. And, uh, cause you were talking about the waves, like whether it works in waves. So, so yeah, that, um, if you call that second wave or whatever, and then, and then the skate punk thing might be third wave, like the no effects and scared straight eighties bands, you know, were a lot different than we were as 10 foot pole and no effects in the nineties. But not that much different. It was an evolution. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a drastic overnight change. It was just kind of like we we started learning how to play guitar more, and and uh, you know, we became more melodic, and people started caring about singing in pitch and stuff. Well, that's the thing about Mystic Records to me is like you go through that roster, and there's just so many bands, you know, be it you know the Minutemen, you know, be it like you know or yourselves or No Effects, like bands that blossomed out of bands that were on there or bands that had members that would go on to be in other bands, you know, even the Hernandez brothers in comics doing, you know, flyers and, and art for some of those early records. Yeah. Yeah. Bad religion, battalion of saints. Um, there was a, there was a lot of, um, interesting music, just the compilations on mystic records were interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, like, I, like I really liked the bad religion acoustic songs from back then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is funny. Like I liked their acoustic songs more than I liked their rock stuff until much later. Well, they're another band that evolved, right? Like you're saying, like these bands that, you know, and that's the thing about the bands that would go on to become, you know, I guess the, the, you know, when, when punk explodes in the, in the nineties, like, you know, it's, it's all these bands had these long histories like yourselves, no effects, bad religion. Like these bands hadn't just popped up, you know, like these bands had kind of evolved to this place where they were, like everyone could play, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't like these mystic bands anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. And it, and, and some of the bands kind of made it and pulled through and then, and then some didn't. And, uh, but yeah, there, th- those ages, I think I remember circle jerks also were big for me. We, we didn't mention that, but you mentioned Keith Morris, but uh, um, like circle jerks were rad. They were one of my favorite bands live. They they never stopped between songs. They would just play like thirty songs in a row, and and as a kid back then with boundless energy, it was like we would just get in line and the bouncers would let us up on the stage and we would just do stage diving for the whole set. <laughs> and uh, it's a much different thing than ten foot pole. I mean, I don't know whether um, I don't know whether I'm overdoing it by talking in between songs, but I kind of feel like our audience comes there to kind of have a connection with us and i and there there are the people in the audience that are just like shut up and play but then there's other people who enjoy talking and so so with simmer down with acoustic shows and and the whole direction of um playing acoustic guitar i go further the other way like um like when i do acoustic shows i tell stories like this and and um and I ask, you know, do you ha- have any questions? Sometimes at the rock shows, I do that too, but sometimes people hate it. But if somebody has a question, like I'll answer it. And I kind of feel like, hey, you paid to get in. You want to see the band. You might have a question about the band. And now's the time to ask, <laughs> you know, yeah. or like I traveled 3000 miles to be here. Let's, let's chat for a minute. You know, whether that's during the show or after the show or, or whatever, like, um, 
you know, I'd, I'd rather have that connection because I, that's one reason I do it is to talk with people and connect and kind of feel like, feel like we're in this together. It's, you know, life is very alienating. And I kind of feel like being, especially our acoustic version is really like opening up to it, you know, letting the audience be part of the show and saying, Hey, please sing along. Do you have any questions you want to, you know, do you care about the lyrics? Like, do you care about what I was thinking when I wrote this song, you know, yeah. and some people do and some people don't. Well, it's like you're saying, like, you know, punk is, is, is more real than a lot of other types of music, you know, like it's not people just singing about fantasy stuff in the same way. Like it's real that you can go up and interact with these people. They're real people. And it could be, you know, someone being really nice like yourself, or it could be someone pulling a switchblade on you, but, but <laughs> you're, you're not going to be able yeah. to find out, you know, whether or not that huge rock star is a dick or not, you know? They keep you, they keep them away from you at that stage. Yeah, and and sometimes for good reason. Although a lot of um, a lot of the bigger musicians and stuff that I've run into as a sound engineer, like a, a lot of them are really intelligent and friendly people and stuff. But then there are a lot of them who are dicks too. So yeah, yeah, it can um, go both ways. <laughs> it's it's protecting them. Yeah, it's and and some people want to keep that mystique too. It's like you know they want the singer to be mysterious and brooding. You don't know what he's thinking. And, um, so probably I ruined that for some people by being like, Hey, let's talk. Yeah. What, what were your memories of working with, you know, speaking of, you know, recording people and people in the music industry, one of the most infamous producers of all time, Doug Moody. Um, Doug Moody. Well, he was very opinionated. He'd be like, Oh, kids will love it. Kids love this. And it's all about like, he's trying to figure out what kids are going to like. And, um, I don't know if he was so much into producing as he was, at least when I think of him, I think more of the marketing stuff that he did. Um, I remember being in a record store and there was a record called Breakfast with Ill Repute and it had like bacon and eggs. And and I, when I saw that, I was absolutely sure that Ill Repute did not make an album called <laughs> Breakfast with Ill Repute. You know, that's totally Mystic Records going, well, we got these tracks. Let's put out a record. Well, I don't know. What, what do we want to call it? <laughs> breakfast with ill repute so and then they did that to us or at least i think they did that to us um at, um when i was in school i can't remember exactly what year it was but um they said hey let's make a record and we said oh okay that sounds fun and uh went to san diego and recorded guitar like one day or two days i can't remember now i think it was just one day and it was like okay these are the scratch tracks and we'll come back and fix them and work on it and like make it better or whatever that's a good start. And then, and then all of a sudden, at least for me, nothing else happened. And then like, I don't know whether, whether it was a year or two years later, I was in a record store in Berkeley and, uh, and I saw this album and it said, scared straight, you drink, you die, uh, you drink, you drive, you die. <laughs> and I was like, what? what? And, uh, and it was like, Scott Radinsky, pitcher for the Chicago White Sox <laughs> <laughs> was in this car crash. Da, 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 and, and and, uh, and there was just all this weird, and, and, uh, so, you know, of course I bought the record and I took it and listened to it. And sure enough, it was those songs, like they were never really finished, but they were polished up a little bit. And, um, and there was all this artwork that had to do with baseball and punk. So like, for example, there was a, there was a, a close, a drawing of a hand with a baseball and, and then it had a spiked leather wrist bracelet. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it was so cheesy, like just this marriage of baseball and and punk with spikes and and basically like kind of fascist straight edge statements. And and I was so embarrassed and angry. And I was just like, oh, Mystic Records, I was so mad. And um, but anyway, so I felt like, you know, that was pretty lame to put out a record without our consent. But in hindsight, it's possible that Scott actually was working with them and that Scott did consent, <laughs> but he didn't ask me about it. And when I asked him about it, he, he kind of like pretended to be ignorant about it. So either he didn't give consent, but then, you know, where did they get the photos of his uh, car crash? And all? he really was in a car crash, mm -hmm. like a drunk driver car crash. So mm -hmm. um, anyway, I, I suspect that he might've supported it but then just not wanted to have that confrontation with me about like why we didn't ever have a discussion about the title of the record that our band made <laughs> well at least with mystic you know no one got paid off of it so you don't have to worry about that argument well yeah well I, yeah i mean there, I, I wouldn't wouldn't worry too much about I, I wasn't worried about the money i was worried about being embarrassed you know because yeah. i was yeah. you know i i was like coming at it from a very different angle than the Nancy Reagan, just say, no, you know, you drink, you drive, you die. We're going to choke you, you know, was kind of the vibe I got. I mean, you know, like, like nobody's going to be like, yay, drunk driving, you know, but, but, um, doesn't necessarily mean you want to be like, you know, we're going to string people up. Um, anyway, so I, uh, so that was one of the reasons we changed the name uh, eventually that, and that fat Mike thought, you know, was like, Hey, you should change your name. Because people think you're a straight edge band and you guys aren't straight edge. <laughs> so were you a straight yeah. edge band in the beginning though? Well, it isn't everybody when you're 12. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, I, w not the kind of straight edge that became what straight edge was in the late eighties, early nineties. Like, like, I, I mean, maybe some of the guys were, um, maybe Scott was, I don't know. He, maybe he did draw X's on his hands or whatever, but, um, I was, so I was raised Mormon. And so I basically didn't drink, you know, for the first, you know, 12 years of my life or whatever, because I was a Mormon kid. And then after that, I got really into wrestling. And so, um, the combination of knowing that the, the kids who were 13 and 14 who were drinking were kind of dicks were basically at least the, the ones that I ran into at parties who were trying to make me drink were kind of bullies and they would get drunk and smash things and, you know, they were basically kind of irresponsible and bullies. And, and so, uh, so I, I wasn't attracted to that lifestyle. And then, and then I got really into wrestling. So I was kind of like, you know, I don't want to do anything that's going to lose my straight edge of being able to be, you know, be as good as I can possibly be. Like I was really into it. And, um, did you wrestle and then eventually, sorry, what's that? Sorry. Did you no. wrestle collegiately? No. Well, in high school, is that what you, is that collegiate? Well, I, I meant, I meant, sorry, yeah, I meant when you went to Berkeley, did you wrestle as well? But like, no, um, actually, Berkeley did not have a wrestling team, so that that was kind of a hard thing. When I when I went to college, I could have gone to Harvard, and the the Harvard coach told my high school coach that I probably could wrestle first year um, on the varsity squad at Harvard, even as a freshman, just because there aren't that many like good wrestlers who go to Harvard. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, like, like I, I, I did really well. And, uh, but my thinking at the time, which he may or may not have made sense, but my thinking at the time was that, um, 
well, I couldn't get a scholarship. There, there wasn't any free ride. They were like, yeah. if you come to Harvard, if you, you know, my grades were good enough, I could get in. So you can get in, but you got to pay. But then you can be on the varsity wrestling, you know, squad right away. So that was really exciting. But then there was part of me that was like, well, if my dad takes out loans to pay for me to go to Harvard, um, I shouldn't sit around and wrestle all the time because <laughs> like I get kind of singular in focus. Yeah. And, um, and so, um, pretty much like if I'm wrestling, I'm going to ignore my other studies quite a bit. And, and so if I'm on the varsity wrestling squad, I would be totally in, like just deep into that and not giving a shit about school. And so I was kind of like, well, I don't want to feel like I owe my dad, you know, well, I mean, like literally owe him, but also just feel like beholden to him. Um, while I'm not even like taking advantage of the education, I'm just wrestling. Now, if I knew then what I know now, which is the reason you go to Harvard is not because their education's any better than Berkeley. It's because you might meet somebody who has a dad who becomes president and then he like puts you in his, you know, in his cabinet and you, you make like $200,000 a year, um, you know, convincing like lobbying for oil companies or whatever they do you know that's why people go to harvard that's why an actress would pay a half million dollars to get her daughter to go to usc it's not because usc is a better school than ucla it's because usc maybe has some connections that that you end up in the right like crowd but the reality is i was a punk like kind of anti-social um not anti-social but I wasn't going to go, I wasn't going to join a fraternity and hang out with Eric Trump and become like pals and then suddenly get in his dad's cabinet. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. like even at UC Berkeley, like I didn't go hang out. There was a lot of conservative kids at Berkeley, but I didn't, I didn't hang out with those guys and get jobs with their dad's companies. And, and that's really what the high level of college is about as far as like, why is it worth that much money? Um, so anyway, long story short, UC Berkeley did not have a wrestling team. And I went, I went to visit the campus there the day after they had a huge um, kind of riot uh, based on their um, trying to divest UC Berkeley out of uh, South Africa in the apartheid um, demonstrations. So I went to the campus and there's all this smashed glass and like just crap everywhere from police battling it out with the students and and, and I thought, wow, this is where I need to be. This is like the cutting edge of, you know, people fighting for justice and equality. And, you know, and um, and then, of course, the reality was at Berkeley, the students had like put so much into that that for the next two years, like nothing happened on campus. Everyone was just like studying real hard and like, not paying attention to politics and stuff, even though I went there because I wanted it to be about that. Yeah, it's 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 just funny. Also, like looking at Scared Straight, like you've got, you know, obviously Scott goes on to have the baseball career, but even yourself, like, you know, it's rare, you know, at least stereotypically that you have people in punk bands also taking sports so seriously at the same time and able to kind of split their focus. Yeah. In, in fact, in, in 85, when we went on tour, that was before our senior year. So like I was really into um, really into the whole you know, wrestling and being in shape. In fact, at pretty much at every scared straight show, I would go in the pit and mosh during the, we didn't say mosh at the time we called it slamming, but now they call it moshing, I guess. But 
during ill repute every night for at least 20 minutes, I would go in and dance slam, whatever you want to call it, because it was a great workout. <laughs> like I would go against the crowd. I'd go with the crowd. Me and Eric, our bass player would just have a good old time. And, um, and it was a lot of fun. It, it wasn't like the black flag, like violent crowd we talked about earlier. It was more like people having a good time and would help each other if they fell down. And, um, but it was like, you know, it was sweating. I mean, that was summertime and I was in there for like a half hour. So I was cut. I was like, I had no fat on me. And, um, and then I went on to, you know, my senior year of, of high school was like a big year for that's when you're going to do the best as far as a wrestler. Cause you're the biggest, you know, on campus. And, uh, and it was great. And it, it was fun to mix the two. Cause I get bored. Did I mention I get bored easily? So that's why I do like as a sound engineer versus a performer. And that's also why, so 10 foot pole is a full like rock skate punk or whatever. And then, um, 10 foot pole acoustic is just something to get away from that. Like all the noise and the bashing drums and somebody telling me how to, you know, how fast I have to play everything. The acoustic show, I just whip out a acoustic guitar and I can stop in the middle of a song and tell a story, or I can speed up or slow down or play loud or soft. And there's not like a whole bunch of other noise that I have to, um, include in my kind of calculus. And, um, and I love that freedom. And so going back and forth between something like that, like acoustic and rock or, um, being in a band or being a wrestler or, um, being a sound engineer or being in a band, like to me, that's fun to, to shift, to just totally change focus. Mm -hmm. When you went to Berkeley, I know you're taking school pretty seriously at this point, but were you going to concerts up there as well? There was some, there was, um, yeah, there were, there were shows at Berkeley square. I remember, uh, what's a band I care about nutrition. Um, <laughs> Oh, crucial youth. Um, no, it's, uh, how did I forget the name of that band? I, because I care about nutrition. Um, and it'll come to me later, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I went to, uh, um, Gilman street like that, that, and in fact, uh, the, the singer of, of rancid Tim worked at the pizza place. I'd see him like all the time because they had pizza was like a dollar a slice and it was giant. And that's kind of what college kids survived on. And, um, was it Blondie's pizza? I think he worked at the other one. There was Blondie's maybe, I don't remember now there was okay. Blondie's like, as you're walking away from the campus, Blondie's was on the right and there was one on the left and Tim worked at the one on the left, but I, I don't know if it was fat slice. Okay. That doesn't sound right, but it could be, I don't know. I mean, it was a long time ago, but, um, but yeah, in fact, I got in a fight with skinheads one time at Gilman street and I couldn't walk. I think it was a bad religion show and I couldn't walk for about a week. That was a little rough. Jeez. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, was it like different? Cause you know, like obviously it's getting pretty hairy by the mid eighties down in LA at hardcore shows. Like, was it less violent up? Uh, but I guess not up in Berkeley. Uh, most things were less violent. Yeah. I mean, that was pretty rare, but, but that's because of, you know, a skinhead problem. Like there's no way I would just get in a fight at a punk show, but there were specifically like skinheads kind of trying to take over the area and, and I wasn't having any of it. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't um, going to bow down to what they were, what they were up to. And, um, it's, it's funny. I was, I was, I found out later that the, the main guy that I was going, uh, going at it with was like 
told told a, a mutual friend that I had just totally kicked his ass. And so that made me feel kind of proud of it. But the problem is all his little buddies were like kind of kicking me in the back while I was kind of holding him. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I had him in a headlock or something. And anyway, I couldn't walk for about a week. So that, that kind of sucked. But, um, but, uh, a friend of mine played uh, bass in Mr. T experience and also Sam, I am. And so, you know, bands like that were playing shows and, and scared straight still did some shows. So it was, it wasn't like, it wasn't over. It just was, you know, I was in Berkeley in that zone. And, um, in, in fact, Aaron Rubin, who played bass that I'm talking about, uh, played a few songs on simmer down on, uh, on the acoustic record. Oh, wow. Awesome. So, um, yeah. And he actually is a successful lawyer, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Cause we're talking about the choices and, and stuff. And, and, uh, I would say, you know, me and him were definitely on like kind of a similar wavelength. We, he he went to see me high school as I did. And then we both went to UC Berkeley. Um, and, and we were both in music. But the difference is that he grew out of it after the 90s. And I kind of stayed in that scene while he was uh, working at a fancy lawyer job. Would, would Scared Street come up and play in Berkeley? Would you guys kind of do shows during that time when you're going to school? I don't remember exactly. I mean, yes, we did do some shows like with uh, Lagwagon and Strung Out maybe. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. I I mean, I know we played at Berkeley Square with Lagwagon and Strung Out. I, what Maybe with Lagwagon and No Use for a name. I don't remember now. There were just so many different, you know, shows over the years. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, it feels like like where point does that new scene begin emerging? Like you mentioned Lagwag in there and no use for a name, obviously no use for a name, you know, had been going for a while in different incarnations, but like, like when did it begin coalescing? And at least in your eyes that there was this new, you know, like another new scene about to emerge. I think, well, I, I didn't think of it in terms of scenes, but when I heard um, No Effects' EP with the longest line, mm-hmm. it it was kind of mind blowing. Like, wow, this is that's that band we toured with. <laughs> like, this is really good. Like, it was, you know, like the whole like um, I can't remember all the songs on it, but it was like the longest line and um, Kill All the White Man, I think, and and it was like this is really good music. Like these guys are going to be popular. This is real. Like this isn't like, you know, I kind of felt like eighties punk was a a very specific kind of music for a very specific kind of person or people. Whereas I felt like at least at the time I felt like no effects was just like way more accessible to just average people, which, which of course it was. And it, and it, and it blew up and um, you know, we didn't try to copy them, but we certainly, felt like we wanted to keep up with them. You know, we didn't want to, we didn't want to be left behind. And that got us kind of like, wow, we really need to like practice our instruments <laughs> and, and like, you know, work on melodies and stuff. And, um, and, and there definitely was a sense of competition. I remember hearing it. I remember being in Scott's Jeep, going to a gig, maybe in Santa Barbara or something like we were on our way to a show and, and he played that the longest line. And I was like, wow, that's really good. And um, so at least in my mind, that was kind of the start of the new era, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, one band that hasn't come up yet, which is uh, a favorite to talk about on the show, 
Um, you know, it seems like they would have been a key ingredient to kind of that sound for no effects is RKL. And I just wonder if you had any memories of, of them over the years. Um, yeah, R RKL was, was considered a Nardcore band. They were on that record, I think. They were on the Nardcore comp. And um, and they had a record called uh, Think Positive that was really good. I think it was called Think Positive. I think the song was called Keep Smiling. Keep Smiling. Think. Think Positive. It was a different. It was a song called Think Positive, too. I think the album was called Think Positive, or maybe it was Keep Smiling. I can't remember now. Keep and Laughing. Keep laughing. That's it. Keep laughing. I don't remember now. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't say RKL was a big influence, but we did play with them and have a good time. And, and, uh, and, uh, definitely like the bass playing was, was just amazing. But then the, I think they stopped and they, they be, some of the guys became slang, I think was called, was it called slang? Well, I don't know. Slang. Up in, up in the, that like kind of, um, I think they were more Santa Barbara. Okay. If, if I recall, but yeah, that, that one record, I guess, cause when we were on mystic, we got free records from mystic and that, uh, whatever it was, think positive or keep laughing, whatever the record was called was, uh, was a mystic record. So I got it for free, I think, <laughs> or maybe I bought it. I don't know. But, uh, but I loved that record. They, um, they were fast and aggressive and especially the bass playing was like, wow, that's really, uh, you know, kind of, kind of like Iron Maiden, but for punk, yeah, where where the bass becomes like kind of the lead. Um, I don't know what you want to say, not rhythm, kind of like the the lead rhythm instrument instead of guitar. Like the guitar just kind of is stable, and the bass is jumping all around with all these different notes. Kind of like a yeah, like I don't know, yeah, where like the bass is like the lead, and then the uh, it's almost like the rhythm is is purely the guitar's function at that point, I guess. Yeah, it, I mean, it's kind of like the opposite of Van Halen. Like, if you yeah. think of the Van Halen song <laughs> "Running with the Devil," he's like on one note through the whole uh, verse. It's just boom, 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 and then the guitar is going dun 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 dun. dun. Whereas with something like RKL, the, the guitars might be going like da 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 da, and the bass is going do 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 You know. Yeah. The point being that you know. It, uh, the bass has somewhere to go and then the guitars just kind of uh, hold still. And th and that's kind of like how Iron Maiden is too, I guess. Although the guitars do a lot in there too. But, um, and our current bass player, uh, Richie Petrillo is, uh, is, uh, Petrillo is, uh, kind of like that. Like he, he, he wants to play every note and, um, that, that's why on Simmer Down, I, I brought in my friend to play, a a couple of the gentle songs just cause like Richie had a hard time, not like kind of playing aggressively, and on the on the acoustic record, I wanted to make it really just kind of beautiful, and you know sometimes it's really mellow, and uh, so it was nice to have uh, our guest lawyer come in, Aaron from Sam I Am and Mr T, and he just like did these like really smooth lines that like no matter how much I pestered Richie, he couldn't. It was just like he had to play every note in the scale and with staccato and energy, and I'm like okay. <laughs> yeah, sometimes legato, the curse of someone playing. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, he also does these rad jumps, which uh, you know, is a lot of punk band is visual, and uh, you know, Richie's a big guy, and he does these huge jumps, and that's great at a at a show. My dogs are outside, like now they want to come back in because I'm the only game in town. Well, I, I've kept you for a very long time, Dennis, and I want you to know anytime you want to come back for a part two, the door is always open.
Oh, thanks. But before I let you go, one thing I'm really curious about is kind of like what it was like kind of going over and seeing, you know, you know, going to Sweden for the first time and seeing, you know, the sound that you, you guys have been kind of pioneering in, in uh, California, taking hold uh, somewhere so far away, just because, you know, you're, you're obviously a, a key band early on in that scene. Like what was, what was that experience like going over there for the first time? Um, I don't really remember Sweden itself, like going over there and, and, and uh, having that be any kind of like eye opening experience. But I mean, certainly the bands like um, no fun at all and Mill and Colin. And um, I, I think their culture really uh, values melody. Like you get like bands like ABBA that are just like really pop melody geniuses. And, and you see that in, um, I mean, I, I shouldn't just say, well, because you're Swedish, you know, you're, you're good at melody, but it seems like it, like they just take it to a whole new level. Like, um, um, like, like when I first heard no, uh, no fun at all, I was just like, wow, like now nah, like the master celebrator song. And some of those were just like, it sounded like the nineties skate punk that, and you know, I could, I could see that where the roots were, but I felt like they, in some ways took it and made it better than we did. And, and, uh, so that, you know, part of me was a little intimidated, like, wow, these guys are really like, just like taking it to a whole new level and satanic surfers and, um, like just being super technical as well as, as, uh, really melodic. And, um, so yeah, you know, I mean, I, it, it's kind of, it was interesting to see like Sweden, at least my understanding of it, it like it punk rock got really hot there for a while, but then it crashed. Like the audiences didn't care about it. And they only wanted to go see raves and stuff. So there, there were these Swedish bands that came out who were big in Sweden, but other bands, you couldn't really tour there very much. And even I think those bands didn't do as well in Sweden as, as they would have, if they were like German bands in Germany, like in, in Germany, there were, there had kind of always been a scene and it, and so it kind of ebbed and flowed a little bit, but in Sweden it became a huge fad and then it crashed and was kind of over. And, um, I, I want to say that one year we played there and there were like maybe a thousand people at a show. And then next year we were there and there was like 40 people <laughs> and not because we sucked, like we had a good show, but just the people who were there before were just not long-term punk fans. They were just kind of following whatever was, the fad at the time a scene could be like a flash in the pan or it could be a long thing with roots and and there's some places like quebec where it seems like a long thing and those are the ones that i try to nurture and go back to and that's that's why um with the acoustic so i've done one real acoustic tour and it was kind of in quebec and parts of ontario and um and that's why and, and that's what i'm trying to do now once the pandemic's kind of over one thing I'm trying to do with the acoustic thing is just play in people's backyards, like really like low budget shows and just take it back to a party. Like, um, especially if I'm not, if I don't have the whole band there, like if we don't have a lot of, um, hotels and food and other costs to worry about, if it's just me and a guitar, like if only 20 people show up, it could still be a good show. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas at a club, you need like more than a hundred people to show up to, for them to break even. And I just want to take that pressure off. Like, I just want to have a good time and go out and play songs. And, and to me, if I can do it in someone's backyard and only 20 people show up, but I still didn't lose money, that's 
safer and better in the long run. And, and um, so that's what I'm pushing for now is like, I'm still trying to do the band thing, but, but trying to make it so I could do acoustic shows low budget and, and have that connection with people without it being um, so risky to be out on the road financially because i've already got the van did i mention i have a van <laughs> and i'm trying that to show my family travel. that this was not an irrational investment <laughs> I, and I, I i'm doing air quotes around the word investment but that that's the basic i mean that's something I'd, I'd like to say before we split is like 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 i'm trying to get out there even just to people's backyards and just trying to find hosts of people who want to put on a party and um and and some people think that that shows as good or better than the rock show, like the feeling they get from it and from being there. And and so um, I'm trying to see if we can kind of build that. I mean, I, I don't want to stop doing the rock shows, but it might not be financially possible to do the rock shows, you know, in all the places where where I keep trying to go. But if but if uh, if I can, you know, play little backyard parties here and there and just make my way across the country, that'd be really cool. And oh, the other thing I want to say for sure before we go, or maybe you could put it in the in the um, the notes too, just so that people yep. see it is yep. um, I'd like to pump tenfootpole.com. T-E-N, tenfootpole.com is the place where we have everything like links to music, links to um, uh, our, we have like kind of a fan club. I hate, it sounds so lame to say it that way, but we basically have people who want to be patrons of the arts, <laughs> people who want to support us before we're like well-known and dead <laughs> artists, <laughs> like for, for as low as $1 a month, you can support us and get in the loop and get some sweet benefits and, um, higher amounts have different benefits, but so there's, you know, there's the Patreon thing, there's, um, skateboard decks for sale, you know, uh, uh, merch, there's vinyl, um, there's Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. But, but the place to go, the news and everything else is at 10 Well, anytime you want to come back on and, and, and talk more, Dennis, the door's always open. And I really do once again, appreciate you making the risky financial decision of not becoming a lawyer because it really helped me kind of get on this path to a risky uh, current uh, situation with kids myself. So thank you for that. Nice. Well, thank you. I'd, maybe, I, I don't know, but if um, it, I, I, it might not happen because the, it's becoming so close, but at one point, so we've committed to playing in Europe next summer. And if that happens, we need to rehearse. And my drummer is in Quebec so I was thinking that to rehearse instead of flying to Quebec, I should drive there using my van. Yeah. <laughs> and what would be really cool is that if I stopped every couple hours and played in backyards on the way. So th that idea was kind of like maybe April ish. All right. So in case you ever want to see like a, an actual um, in-person thing, or maybe we could do this like kind of around that time frame if, it, if it's going to happen. And try to pump that, like try to get people to um, to have interest in doing it or or to even, you know, if you have a backyard or friends with a backyard and want to join in on a show or something. Um, I, I I don't know whether it'll be possible, but I'm going to keep talking about it until until it happens, I hope. <laughs> well, we can set up the uh, the track for track acoustic uh, Nardcore, the album cover set in my backyard <laughs> come April. Yeah. The, the Nardcore record. But uh, yeah, 
Um, well, I hope people give Simmer Down a listen. And so far, like I said, like uh, all the responses I've got, people were pretty excited about it. So I hope that translates into people wanting me to actually show up and play a little gig in the backyard. Thank you, Dennis, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Dennis can come back whenever he wants. We will, we will conversate more. And uh, get through this together, <laughs> this very unsure time. And uh, you know what? From the sounds of it, he didn't shut the door on me booking him to play my backyard for that Nardcore LP acoustic set. And so potentially when when hopefully the world returns to some sort of state of normalcy, he will be in my backyard jamming on some aggression songs. Speaking of things that look forward to on the other side, on the other side of a few days, a scant few days, I will have two members from one band again when I will have Michael and Vanessa from the band Pylon on the show in celebration of that brand new, incredible looking Pylon box set, which has come out on New West Records. Uh, they will be coming on the show and I will be making a weekend of it. You will have two episodes. It'll be like a Pylon weekend. You know, you can check out uh, do two very different perspectives on being in a band. That's why I like doing these these two people from the same band ep episode kind of weekends, because you get two very different stories and ultimately, you know, it's about one band. So there you go. And that is coming up on the show. Uh, don't forget to check out Dennis's simmer down acoustic record, which you can hear uh, right now on people of punk rock records. Thank you to my friend, buddy, Melanie K for setting this up. Thank you to Tristan for setting it up. Thank you to you. Thank you to Dennis. Thank you to, to, to everyone, thank you. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect uh, trans people, trans, young trans lives. Um, right now, it's really important that we all kind of stand together and realize what fascism does is tries to divide and tries to... Uh, it's a really an insidious ideology, and it really tries to tear people down and we need to stand up to it right now. And if that means showing up, if that means signing petitions, if that means donating money, if that means voting, um, whatever it takes, you know, we need to stand up to fascism. So fuck fascism and, uh, get involved, uh, right now, please for, for all of our sake, uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them. You're not going to need them anymore, so might as well give them to someone who does, you know. Um, uh, make something creative. Go out there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this shit. Start a band. Start a podcast. Start a, a zine. Start something. Wear your mask. You know, like, what does it hurt? Just wear your fucking mask, you know. Uh, we'll get through this. We're going to get through this. It might be a long winter, but we're, we're together. And uh, I love you. Stay safe. And bye. See you next episode. A few few days. Just a few days. I'll see you in a few days. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.